0: a collaborative novel whose characters and their stories are each written by a different major literary voice. It's stories within stories.
1: There's a a tradition in literature, not just English literature, but across the world, of the frame narrative, which is stories told within stories and sometimes told within stories and told within stories. I mean, a a wonderful example of this is A Thousand and One Nights. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales was like this. The Decameron was a framed narrative. So it's a very ancient and venerable literary device.
0: That's author Robert Preston. We talk with him about 14 Days, an unauthorized gathering. He's joined by room author Emma Donahue, who contributed one of the characters to the book. Then we remember Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, by airing some of our interview with Jonathan Eig. His biography of King is King, a Life. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Riannon. During the height of the COVID pandemic, a whole lot of authors found their calendars suddenly empty. No bookstore readings, no writers' conferences, no research trips. That's when Authors Guild president Robert Preston had a brilliant idea. Why not reach out to suddenly idle writers and ask them to contribute stories to a novel taking place during that time? He roped in Margaret Atwood as a co-editor, and the book project, 14 Days, was off to the races. Set in a Lower East Side tenement in the early days of the COVID-19 lockdown, 14 Days features a collection of diverse characters who are stuck in lockdown because they can't afford to escape to country houses in the Hamptons or elsewhere, like wealthier New Yorkers did to while away the boredom they meet every night on their tenement's rooftop to tell stories to each other. What they create is more than an antidote to boredom. It's a true community. Each character is written by a different author, including such luminaries as Dave Eggers, Erica Jong, John Grisham, Meg Wallitzer, and Scott Turow, and my guests, Robert Preston and Emma Donahue. The proceeds from 14 Days are going to support the Authors Guild fight against book bans. Well, Douglas Preston and Emma Donahue, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank Thank you. 14 Days, a collaborative novel. This is a project of the Authors Guild, of which you, Doug, are the president. It was edited by Margaret Atwood and you. And the contributors are an eclectic cast of authors, some of them very well-known, as are both of you, including Dave Eggers, John Grisham, Erica John, Scott Turow, and many more. So I understand, Doug, from something that I read somewhere, that you came up with the idea of doing something like this long ago. So tell us about that, and how did this collaborative novel come about?
1: Well, it's a very unusual literary experiment. Um, one of the things about the Authors Guild is that we represent all authors, journalists, fiction writers, nonfiction, poets, children's authors, you know, sci-fi, romance, literary, what, and what have you. And for a long time at the Authors Guild, we've been talking about doing an anthology, but how do you put together an anthology with such tremendous diversity? Um, It just really can't be done. And even if you did do it, it wouldn't be commercially viable. So we had this idea of turning this into a storytelling situation. And years and years ago, I started a novel, which was going to be a pandemic novel. This is long, long before COVID, sort of like the Decameron, where a bunch of people during a pandemic, go off and tell stories. And I started writing it and it was a disaster. So I gave it up. But then when COVID-19 happened and we'd been talking at the Authors Guild, how are we going to uh, produce a literary work that's inclusive of all the genres, all the authors we represent, all the people um, and with maximum diversity? How can we do that? And it suddenly occurred to us that Well, it occurred to me to revive this idea of the pandemic novel, and everyone loved it. And so this is how it came about. We assumed a building, a shabby building on the Lower East Side of New York. During the early days of the pandemic, all the wealthy people have fled the city, and leaving behind a group of tenants whose only fresh air is on the roof of this shabby building. And of course, like New Yorkers, they start off by doing nothing except fiddling with their phones and and, uh, not talking to each other. But after a while, they start talking to each other, and finally they start telling stories of their lives. And so at the Authors Guild, uh, with Margaret Atwood's tremendous guidance, she helped us recruit 36 uh, remarkable authors from all different genres to write these first-person stories, which we then put in the mouths of characters which some of which were suggested by our authors and others which we, you know, created ourselves. So that's that's kind of how it came about. And Emma is was one of our authors and she wrote a, a fabulous story uh, called The Party, which is told by a character named Eurovision on the roof, and it's just a a really lovely story.
0: Yes, it really is. And and do you want to tell us a little bit about Eurovision, Emma, and how he got his name? Well, you know,
2: the funny thing is, this, this collection has taken so long to come together. I'm a bit foggy on the sequence of events, but I seem to remember that we wrote our stories initially, you know, in a fairly informal way. Um, we 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 weren't even sure would they all be standalone pieces or might they be you know bits and pieces might be used or we we didn't know who'd be telling them as far as I remember so I I I drafted two stories just in a spirit of you know uh, what what stories do I have roaming around in my head at the moment and one of the stories happened to suit this character so um, I certainly don't think that I was the the only one who originated him so in a way we we began with the stories and then we found. Um, tellers who were part of the more permanent structure of the book, who were the right tellers to tell them. Am I right, Doug? Am I remembering this right? It's so long ago.
1: Yes, you are. You know, it's funny. This was, you know, this wasn't a project that formed fully, that was launched fully formed and fully conceived. We sort of stumbled into it. Uh, We got a bunch of stories. Some uh, uh, authors suggested characters. Now, Eurovision was not I wrote the, the frame narrative and invented some of the characters, but Eurovision was not my invention. I can't remember who invented that character. Emma, you didn't suggest him, did you? Or
2: I don't think I did. I think it's just that the story I offered, the story he told about friends of his having a, 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 having a party, it just seemed to suit him. But I, I don't know who came up with him. I mean, this was a wonderfully... Um, What's the word? The boundaries on this project were so loose. We, we usually each have our own work and our own career and we know every word we write. But this one had a genuinely sort of improvisational quality and a quality of sharing that you know, funnily enough, I did my PhD on 18th century authors, and they were always doing this kind of thing. You know, Samuel Richardson would would like a piece that his friend Sarah Fielding had written, so he would just insert it into his novel, and then Charlotte Lennox would ask him to read her novel and give edits, and you know, they all swapped things around in a very sort of cafe culture, loosey-goosey sort of way. So I, I thought this 14-day collection was actually a bit of a throwback to that spirit.
1: That's exactly right. That's wonderful. That's exactly how it came about, and at times i wondered what the what the heck are we doing i mean i don't know where we're going with this somehow it came together uh and i hope since i'm too close to it to really judge but i hope that the reader reads this and and it feels like it's a a, a tight and well conceived literary work but as emma just pointed out uh you know if you draw back the curtain it it looks very dis, you know sort of improvised and and serendipitous and even a little bit disorganized.
2: But you know that that disorganization is crucial because if you have it all fully organized, then every writer or their agents are maintaining their boundaries and what you would get is just a book of short stories so to really have the stories rub up against each other and you know be told by each other's tellers and, and, and create an actual collaborative novel you actually needed a more loose structure and I guess because of the COVID time atmosphere lots of us said yes to that I had actually done a communal novel with Irish writers long long time ago so that's why I said yes to this one immediately because it was such fun. I did a book called Ladies Night at Finbar's Hotel where we each threw a story in and then we were told sort of where it fitted into the, into the hotel and then did a little bit of polishing to make them compatible. So I think these experiments are absolutely great and they create a rare sense of, you know, fellow feeling
0: in our midst. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and you know, let's kind of go back to the frame of this and, and what this is based on because um, it's based on the kind of structure of the Decameron. Uh, which was by Giovanni Boccaccio. Uh, say a little bit about this construct for a collaborative novel. Of course, that one was not collaborative, but it was a, a story about a collaboration of stories. So say, say uh, you know, talk about this connection with Boccaccio's Decameron.
1: There's a, a tradition in literature, not just English literature, but across the world, of the frame narrative which is stories told within stories and sometimes told within stories and told within stories i mean a, a wonderful example of this is a thousand and one nights where when you read that book I, it's it's really a collection there's so many stories within stories that you lose every you lose the, the the origin of where you're coming from you know chaucer's canterbury tales was like this the decameron was a frame narrative so it's a very ancient and venerable literary device, uh, which was adopted for this story. So it's, I mean, I mean, this is very different from the Decameron. In the Decameron, we have lords and ladies who are fleeing the plague in Florence, going up to a villa in the, in the Florentine Hills and telling stories with each other. Uh, these are very privileged, wealthy people who can escape the plague. But our frame narrative are the people who can't escape They're the left-behinds. They're the ones who've been abandoned. So in in a way, it's an opposite to the Decameron because it's talking about the people who who aren't able to get away and how they deal with this tremendous fear, this pandemic, the terror, the the statistics. For example, the, the narrative is told by the super of the building, who's a woman, Um, And she's really into numbers and statistics. And so a bit like Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, at the beginning of each night, she records the statistics of deaths, of infections uh, in New York, in the state and and across the world. And so you get this building feeling of dread and horror. And at one point, our narrative says, my God, I just read an estimate in the New York Times that by the end of this as many as 50,000 people might die. So there's tremendous irony built into this because, of course, uh, a few more than 50,000 died.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I actually noted that. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. We're talking with Robert Preston about the collaborative novel he contributed to and co-edited 14 Days, An Unauthorized Gathering. He's joined by Booker Prize author of Room, Emma Donoghue, who contributed one of the characters to the book. You know, we're only a couple of years away from the events of this book, and the pandemic is still going on. In fact, right now we have a new variant, and hospitalizations and deaths are increasing again. But it really struck me that it seems so far away that it, for, for some reason, so much has happened since the events of this, which take place in, uh, you know, they start on March 31st of 2020, very early in the pandemic, at the height of the, the New York tsunami of deaths. And um, I, I just wonder if that's something that you might want to comment on, why a collaborative novel about about the pandemic what about remembering something that we our entire society seems so bent on trying to forget one thing one thing i think makes this a good book to address covid
2: is that it's not all about covid i think the kind of fiction which came out with indecent haste you know all about the details of lockdown and so on i think that really has dated because you know these a bit like with say new new motherhood or something, it's all so extraordinary to you. But if other people have all lived through it, it can seem quite banal. So um I, I think I think what's great is that they tell stories rather than talking entirely about the COVID experience. And I think that's something that gives it a, a lasting quality. And the fact that, as Doug says, it has very ancient roots, really. I mean, it's it's it goes back to so many collections of stories which were often um often the frame narrative um had, had had death dangling in it somewhere, you know whether Shahrazad trying to ward off the executioner's sword or you know chaucer's pilgrims or or um Boccaccio 's guests you know storytelling on the brink of of possible death I think is a really powerful motif i'm also reminded say of that wonderful play and um, um uh, oh, I'm going blank on it. Sorry, the the one about um the 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 bad factory owner in the sem- in the Simpsons, uh, Mr. Burns' a post electric play is the one I'm thinking of. Yes, it starts in a post apocalyptic setting with people sitting around a campfire remembering bits of Simpsons episodes. So um, I I think I think there's something very ancient and powerful about it, which uh, I think saves this 14 days book from from being like too specifically of 2020.
0: Oh, yes, I I agree with that. But nonetheless, it is haunted by the death that is going on around us. And I use that word haunted in a number of different ways that we won't necessarily go into. But there is the sense there many of the stories are about loss, about abandonment, and yes, about death and even about ghosts. So... How to, you know, I think it achieves very well that kind of um, the stories within the larger story without letting the larger story overwhelm it. But nonetheless, it is set within the pandemic. So maybe, Doug, do you want to tackle this notion of the kind of the connection between these stories, many of which are just about, you know, daily life, a slice of daily life within the context of a larger horror?
1: Yes, the... um I think it goes back to why human beings tell stories. Um, Every culture, stories are important to every human culture. Uh, Obviously, the telling of stories is something that's deeply embedded uh, in our history and maybe even in our genomes. People tell stories to make sense of a terrifying and sometimes chaotic world. This is how we deal with the chaos, the fear, and the unknowability of the world we live in, is to tell stories, try to make sense of it, to pass on our values, to tell each other who we are in a good way. And so I think that this book really goes to the fundamental nature of of why we human beings tell each other stories.
0: (laughs) And let's talk a little bit now about some of the characters because they're so vivid. Uh, and let's start with the super, Yesenia Grigorescu. Uh, she's really a remarkable character.
1: Did you create her, Doug? I did. I did create her, and I I love her. I, I don't know how else to say it. She just has become a very real person to me, more real than any of the real people I actually know. (laughs) I guess that's what happens when you're a novelist. She's very different from I am. Uh, She is, I don't know how to describe her. Maybe Emma could, I'm too close to this character. I'd I'd be very curious to hear what Emma thinks of the character of Yessie, who sort of is the one who captures these stories on the rooftop without anyone's knowing about it. She has her cell phone out there, she's recording, and then she writes them down later at night. And that this whole book is actually a transcription of her, you know, commentary with these stories embedded in it. But I mean, I don't know, Emma. Do you think yes, he works as a character? I'm curious.
2: I do, and um, I haven't yet been sent my proof copy of the book, so I haven't read it recently enough to give an up to date, um, a, a fresh estimate of it. But I think as a as the narrator, she works very well, partly because you know, a super is traditionally quite a you know, despised role. You know, and they're not they're they're not like the president of the co-op or anything. So I, I really like the idea that somebody who who is around and necessary but could easily be resented by the tenants would, in fact, have this have this kind of linchpin role. I think that was a very smart choice.
0: Well, and they they do well. I wouldn't say they resent her as much as. They're intrigued by her, and she's very, very private. Now, of course, I guess a narrator, it's probably a good idea that you have— you know, she's almost a stand-in for the authorial voice. So she doesn't really like to reveal a whole lot of herself to her fellow rooftop uh, visitors there. But I, I loved her story. She's an immigrant, like so many people in this other character's, In this uh, collaborative novel, 14 Days, which was put together by uh, you, Douglas Preston, and uh, along with Margaret Atwood and Emma Donoghue, who uh, who we are also speaking with here, contributed a story to it. So tell us about, you you know, you're very close to her and I'm intrigued by that, but also talk about some of the other things that come through in this book, the experience of immigrants, for example.
1: Yes, these, there's huge diversity in this book in terms of the people telling the stories. And a lot of the people are recent immigrants. And um, this is very much reflective of of what the Lower East Side is like and the history of the Lower East Side in New York, which was, of course, an immigrant portal for so many immigrant groups coming to this country for you know over 100 years. So there's that diversity there's a lot of spanish being spoken and and spanish words being thrown about um yesi is romanian there's uh um, recent you know immigrants from asia from china from india um or first generation as well so that this and then there're also storytellers who who are you know anglo going back many generations so it's really a tremendous diversity across the board Canadian Irish and uh, U.S. authors people from many different backgrounds and as well as many different genres and I think that that's what is, is, is one of the strengths of this literary work is this tremendous diversity but it's also a very accurate reflection of a rundown building on the Lower East Side which is becoming gentrified so you're seeing some kind of you know, upscale, uh, privileged people moving in or paying a lot more rent than some of the others who are of rent control, and uh, so you get this wonderful diversity on the rooftop.
0: Yeah, it's it's great. I, I actually, uh, my mother lived just a few blocks from Rivington Street. <laughs> <laughs> so I know the area very, very well. And uh, I think you portray a building of its kind quite well. You know, I wanted to go back to something that I think that you mentioned, Emma, much earlier, which was how this the coming together of this book is so different than how it's done you know with agents and you know everything very kind of you know separate people in separate and in competition perhaps with each other in the book industry so I wonder if you could talk a, a little bit about how this kind of breaks the strictures of our Overly you know controlled I mean I think we have uh what is it maybe three companies that own all the book publishers you know that break the strictures of of our current state of the book industry
2: well, I suppose when you're contributing a story to a collection like this, you know you you set ego aside to a certain extent in that first of all, you know it'll be it'll be communal um in in terms of how it's received, but also I don't think our names are revealed until the back, how's it done, Doug? Are there is there a little sort of code that allows people to work out who wrote what?
1: The stories are not byline. When you read the book, you don't know who wrote which stories. We did not use put bylines in, first of all, because fictional characters are telling the stories and we thought it would break the the fourth wall. <laughs> it would take the reader out of the story to suddenly see a byline attached to the story. But actually, there was a philosophical reason behind it. We're trying to get away from, at, at the Authors Guild, trying to uh, get away from the idea of the author as celebrity, the the fabulous best-selling author. the, the you know, in, in in other words, let's we're asking the reader to read these stories without knowing who wrote them, without any preconceptions about what genre uh, they come from. So when you start a story, that you don't know if that story was written by a nonfiction writer, or a romance author, or a science fiction author, a thriller author, or a literary author. And so you're reading the story without those genreized expectations, which I think, personally, are sort of not healthy in the literary community, this sort of dividing everyone up into genres. I mean, if you look back, what, what genre is Shakespeare? Well, was he a thriller writer? Is he literary? Is he, you know... Um, I mean, is he romance? It's hard to say. History, historical fiction. What? What is Shakespeare? You know, no one worries about Shakespeare's genre. But why do they worry so much today? Well, I think this book pushes back against those genre uh, genreization of our literary culture.
0: And why is it so balkanized in that way?
1: Well, I think it has to do with with the way publishers sell books. Um, you know, they want to tell the audience. Uh, what kind of author this is, and so they've come up with all these words: sci-fi, you know, romance, children's, you know, literary, and they're kind of artificial. It's a marketing device. I I don't blame the publishers for this uh, at all. I think that it's important to indicate to readers what they're getting, but at the same time, I think it does diminish uh, the richness of our literary culture uh, because, you know, I mean, Emma's story, for example how do you how do you categorize that story well i prefer not to categorize that story i prefer to let the reader read it without preconceptions and so that's what that this book is trying to do
2: You know, there are a number there are a number of examples of individual famous authors trying to set their fame aside to kind of test whether their book would sell without the celebrity of their name. I know Doris Lessing's done it, Stephen King's done it, and and they typically have enormous difficulty even placing this novel with a publisher if it's anonymous or or getting many people to buy it. Whereas the great thing about a a book like this is that we can we can wear a mask just for the evening, like at a ball, but all our names are together on the cover, helping itself. sell. So, in a way, this was the perfect opportunity for a lot of us to have a little break from our own from our own face, as it were, um, while still ensuring that readers out there would know that this is a novel with all these fabulous names in it. Um, so, so it was ideal in that way. And and you know what you were saying, um, Doug, uh, about you know the, wanting to get away from the the sort of competitiveness between writers. It reminds me of those early days of COVID, when in everyday life, I think a lot of us felt. That suddenly we were we were very equalized. You know, we and our neighbors were all running out of toilet paper together. Um I think as soon as public space and communality were forbidden to us, it became extra precious. So, you know, when when playgrounds and park benches were taped off, um suddenly I was wanting to go to those spaces. I was wanting to sit on the park bench. So um I think a novel like this actually allowed us all to do something communally, which was particularly particularly sweet in those early days.
0: And I think also a value of it is that it introduces uh, a lot of readers to authors that they may have never haven't read before or even heard of. And I think that that's, that's so it's it's also a kind of democratizing influence where people may be drawn in because of the the uh, fame of some of the authors and stay to read those more of those authors that they are they've just learned about
2: yes and they and they can't skip the ones they don't think they'll like because we're not named till the end So it's, it's as if we all that we all got to go to the party uh that was 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 in the spotlight because of the biggest name authors i mean i know i said yes to this project the minute i saw margaret atwood's name on it so um So, yeah, I think there are huge benefits to this kind of um, gathering of bigger names and and less big names and and making it a truly diverse project. And the the big name authors benefit, too, I think, because they get to be at a very cool party.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, can I ask you both if there are any books forthcoming from you that you care to share with our listeners? News of? I'm still um, I'm I'm
2: still doing the last few events from my most recent novel, um, Learned by Heart. So um that's what I've been working on, but then always on to the next novel, too. I, I I tend to overlap them, so I always have, you know, at least one being researched and one being written and one being publicized.
1: Well, I just I just published a book uh, on December 5th called The Lost Tomb. And it's it's a nonfiction book a collection, mostly of my nonfiction pieces in the New Yorker magazine about archaeology and paleontology and uh, uh, true crime, murder. <laughs> it's kind of a, a collection of dark uh, nonfiction stories.
0: So um, I actually wanted to follow up on one one more thing, which was you mentioned that people are kind of limiting, trying to limit their writing to a certain kind of genre, I recently read an article about the extreme concentration in the book industry and how it's influencing not only what gets read, but also what gets written. And it, was, it even went beyond trying to squeeze your work into a certain genre. Is that something that you felt the pressure of or that authors are talking about? I think it depends what you're known for. I'm I'm not particularly known
2: for one set genre, so my publishers seem to tolerate my skipping merrily from near future to 7th century Ireland. So I I can't say I feel that myself, but I think if you happen to be known for a particular you know, like a Lee Child novel, for instance, the Jack Reacher novel, um, that the hungry market is going to ask you for that exactly once a year for the rest of your life. You know, I think that's why probably Lee Child retired from writing Jack Reacher novels. So, yes, I, I do see it as a as a slightly sinister factor in modern publishing. But personally, I happen to have a reputation that's, you know, very, very mix and gather So it, it doesn't uh, squeeze me too tight.
0: And you're just writing a nonfiction novel, uh, Doug. So was that a stretch to get the interest of of the publishing industry? I imagine not,
1: not a stretch. Well, I I actually started out as a nonfiction author and then moved into fiction. But I've written a couple of three or four nonfiction books, you know, the last one being The Lost City of the Monkey God, which was a a true story about the discovery of a pre-Columbian civilization in the jungles of Honduras. I've been writing nonfiction pieces for The New Yorker for 25 years, so, so that wasn't too difficult. But the point that you raised, though, about the concentration of power in the publishing industry is very concerning. You know, and, and I'm speaking now as someone who is president of the Authors Guild. You know, we blocked, working with the Justice Department, blocked the acquisition of Simon and Schuster by Penguin Random House because... We felt, and the Justice Department agreed, that this was too much of a concentration of power in one publishing company. I mean, the combined publishing company would have been forty to fifty percent of most of the books printed and sold in America. And also, Amazon is very concerning. It has a huge market share in the publishing business, um, you know, vertically and horizontally. So this is a this is a great concern. Um, The Authors Guild is really really fighting uh against this consolidation we we greatly believe in diversity and uh competition in the publishing industry and so we're we're fighting constantly to make sure that 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 you know American literary culture isn't impoverished by the concentration of power among just a few publishers
0: I couldn't agree more and in fact this novel, 14 Days, a collaborative novel. I understand that m- much of the proceeds are going to support the work of the Authors Guild. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, all, all the proceeds will, uh, except for the, very kindly the, the agency, the literary agency that handled it, waived their, their commission, which was very generous of them. And we paid our authors with an extremely generous grant from Suzanne Collins, you know, she wrote The Hunger Games. We asked her for a story and she said, well, I don't want to write a story, but I'll instead I'll, I'll give you a donation so you can pay all the authors, which, of course, we're going to pay the authors anyway because we believe that authors have to be paid. But that was a tremendously generous gift. Um, so there's so many people who worked on this without any kind of remuneration. So we're very grateful to everyone. I mean, this is truly a collaborative project, not just in terms of stories, but also in terms of time. Of people who've who have given up their commissions or donated to the project. And the book got a very large advance, and and we really have high hopes for it in terms of the market. Uh, it's really important because all this money that the Authors Guild is getting from it are, we're plowing back into, into litigating against book banners. And uh also uh we're engaged in a lawsuit against OpenAI and soon other perhaps other. Companies that are developing AI systems that are ingesting all our books and violating our copyrights uh, without asking permission or or without compensating us. Um, I mean, hundreds of thousands of books are being used by these giant AI systems to build their large language models, uh, to build these very powerful and valuable commercial products for which authors are getting paid nothing. And which are then going to write books that may compete with authors in the near future. So, so the Authors Guild is involved in some really important and Titanic struggles here. And so believe me, this the, the money from this project is going right back out the door to support American or literary culture in general and authors and books.
0: And I would love it if you could uh give us some links that we can post on our website to those efforts so that people can read more about them.
1: Yes, if you go to the Authors Guild uh website and you can Google news, uh news stories, and then you can or what we stand for, uh and then you can read about what the Authors Guild is involved with. This there are all kinds of projects. I mean, we're involved with collective bargaining, trying to win collective bargaining for authors. Uh, which they presently don't have because we're considered to be 1099, um, you know, independent contractors. There's a whole lot that needs to be done, and literary culture is besieged on many sides, from big tech who take our our content uh, for free who don't violate our copyrights, to uh, those who are banning books all over the country, and uh, we're fighting them not just with words but also litigating. We have attorneys on staff who uh, who actually litigate, and that's a very powerful tool. Believe me, um, you know it's easy to talk, but when you litigate, you are really that's where the rubber meets the road. And we're we're holding um, the book banners accountable in court. Wow! Would you like to give us an example? Um, yes, we're, we're actually suing uh, uh, in a Texas school board, which has not only tried to ban books in schools, but they're trying to ban books in bookstores as being so, as being, quote, pornographic. So they're they're, they're really out there, not just trying to control what students read, but they're trying to control what everybody reads. And this is clearly a violation of the Constitution of, you know, our First Amendment rights of free speech. So we're litigating there. We're also written a number of amicus briefs for other litigations in other jurisdictions, and we are winning every single one. We are winning these lawsuits. But there's so many going on that it's going to be a long, drawn-out fight, and it's very expensive. Well, that is so important. Uh, This
0: is really all about democracy, and there are so many threats to our democracy that I just salute you for the work that you do. It's so important. And uh, i Just thank you, Emma, also, uh, both you and Douglas Preston for talking with us here on Writer's Voice about this um, pandemic collaborative novel that isn't really about the pandemic. It's a wonderful read. It's called 14 Days. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Robert Preston and Emma Donahue. Go to writersvoice.net for links to the Authors Guild campaigns to protect authors and their books. Next up, we celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Stay tuned after the break. In honor of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr.'s birthday, let's listen back to my 2023 conversation with biographer Jonathan Ige about his book, King, A Life. There have been many books written about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but the one just published by Jonathan Ige stands out, not only for the new material Ige reveals, but for the intimacy of his portrait of the famed civil rights leader. We learn about Dr. King's upbringing, his initial reluctance to become a preacher like his father, the moment he recognized that, as he thought of it, God had chosen his path to service in the Movement for Racial Justice. We learn in detail about the implacable persecution of King by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. Ike tells stories about King's speeches that bring a deeper understanding and appreciation of them to the reader. We learn also about King's deep flaws as a man and a husband, his sexism and discounting of women's leadership in the civil rights movement, his tendency to plagiarize the words of others in his writings. Also, King's profound courage in the face of unrelenting attacks and his undying faith in humanity. It all comes together in a spellbinding story written by a master storyteller. Jonathan Eig is the author of six books, including a biography of Muhammad Ali. Jonathan Eig, welcome to Writer's Voice.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: This book, King, A Life, is such an intimate portrait of King's life. I I felt like I was a fly on the wall. I mean, it was absolutely riveting. There have been a lot of books written about Martin Luther King Jr., so first, why were you moved to write this one? And and then I'm going to ask you to just talk about the new material, the sources that you used. But first, why were you moved to write this?
3: Well, you said the magic word for me, which is intimate. Um, I felt like the King books, uh, first of all, there hadn't been a King biography in 35 years when I began this project. It's now over 40 years. And the books that have Really riveted me. Books like you know the Taylor Branch trilogy and the David Garrow book Bearing the Cross, they weren't um, intimate in that way because there's are these giant histories and that, that encompass much more than just King's life. So I set out to write something that felt more intimate. So I'm glad that that was the word you chose. But the the real the more immediate reason that I began is that I was interviewing people for my Muhammad Ali book. Now ten years ago, that I was doing these interviews and I realized these were a lot of people who knew. Martin Luther King Jr. And I just started asking out of curiosity, what was he like? Um, what was it like to be around the man? Um, because I felt like um, I really had no clue. Um, having you know grown up in an age when we've turned him into a monument and a, a national holiday, and sometimes it feels like we've turned him into a Hallmark card, um, I really wanted to get a sense for what, what he was like as a person. And and then to put that story in context and to re- return some of the um, the teeth uh, to his personality, you know, he was—he's uh, been defanged along the way, and I really wanted to remind people just how radical and how brave he was, too.
0: Yes, and uh, that's one of the things that I think is so important about this book. He was a very complex man, and m- maybe just briefly, because we'll revisit this, I think, throughout the throughout this conversation. What were some of the things that struck you most about his complexity about about some of his contradictions
3: well so many things for one thing he suffered tremendously from from doubt and he he suffered terribly from the uh, effects of the FBI um, assault on him you know he kept doing his work he kept marching forward he kept going you know more and more boldly into the breach but it it had an impact you know he was hospitalized several times maybe like fair to say many times for exhaustion, for for just I am um, you know succumbing to the stress of, of what he was doing. So that kind of courage in, in the face of doubt to me makes him even more heroic. Uh, there were so many contradictions. He was a protest leader who hated confrontation. He hated being in conflict with the people around him, including his father, including his wife. He was you know one of the most moral people I've ever encountered and yet he was you know hopelessly immoral when it came to his to marital fidelity. So those complexities are part of what made him so much, um, so interesting and so human for me.
0: And then tell us something about the new material that you worked with and and the sources that you used.
3: Well, the first important source was was live witnesses, as I mentioned. You know, there were dozens of people who knew King well still around when I began this work. Unfortunately, quite a few of them have passed away, but I began just canvassing the country, trying to find people who knew King and, and doing those interviews in person. Um, most of the time before COVID hit, and then over the phone. Um, but in addition to that, there was a lot of new archival material. You know, the FBI has recently released uh, or declassified tons of documents. I found new papers that had never been seen before in the LBJ archives that were highly sensitive, and then there were archives that that uh, had that were had been you know newly um, released. You know, the SCLC had an official historian, a guy named LD Reddick who traveled with King everywhere and took notes on every meeting and and his papers were just recently uh, donated and opened up at the Schaumburg library in Harlem. And I believe I was the first person to open those boxes or at least, you know, most of those boxes. Um, th- there were endless discoveries to be made. And I was really pleasantly surprised at just how much new material I found. And there
0: is still w- at least one big box that is not going to be opened until 2027.
3: <laughs> yes, the FBI uh, has not released the audio recordings of its wiretaps of King, and um, those will be uh, very important, and they are scheduled to be released in 2027. We have transcripts of many of the wiretaps, and they're very revealing, and uh, they are believed by almost everyone to be accurate, because I talked to people who whose voices were heard on those tapes, including Andrew Young, including Harry Belafonte, including... Um, People like um Bayard Rustin who before he passed away said that his uh, the FBI transcripts were 100 percent accurate in his opinion. So that is important. But until we hear the voices, until we hear the you know the the um the audio, um we'll there's still room for doubt about what the what the FBI was was reporting on, King.
0: Do you expect to delve into them when they're opened?
3: Oh, I'll be the first in line to <laughs> or the first one clipping. To uh, to try to listen to them if they are released as promised in 27. There's still some people. There are still people um, hoping to prevent that, but that's uh, neither here nor there, as far as I'm concerned. I'll be listening if they're released.
0: So now, tell us a little bit about his family. Uh, you mentioned his father. His father was uh, larger than life in many ways. He was also a preacher. Uh, tell us about him and their relationship.
3: Martin Luther King, Sr., or, or Daddy King, as as most people called him. Um, is one of the great heroes of American history, I think, and uh, we should be writing operas about him, uh, or, or or something, because he is the classic um, version of the American dream. Only you know, the particular version of the American dream um, for people of uh, whose ancestors were enslaved. Because uh, Daddy King grows up as a sharecropper. Um, his father um, was born into slavery, so that's Martin Luther King Jr.'s grandfather. And they're sharecropping uh, in a town called Stockbridge, uh, 20 miles outside of Atlanta. And uh, under typical and typically horrendous conditions, you know, they are made to work for, with almost no chance of, of gaining um, a profit and absolutely no chance of ever owning that land. And um, Daddy King's father is driven to, to, to um, drinking and, and acting violently, beating his children, beating his wife and Daddy King at the age of about twelve, just decides to leave, walks to Atlanta, um, and starts working at a at a rail yard and educating himself because the schooling in Stockbridge was was minimal. He was almost illiterate, and he, you know, in one in the span of you know just a few years, elevates himself from from cotton farming to to um, preacher at one of the big Baptist churches in um, in Atlanta, and really uh, gets a, a foothold in the American dream and makes it possible for Martin Luther King Jr. to be Martin Luther King Jr. Um, it's really a remarkable story. Um, but the conflict between Daddy King and, and M.L., as he called his son, um, is, is fascinating to me because... Um, Martin Luther King clearly wants to, to please his father at all terms, but he also um, fears him and and doesn't want to turn out like his father. In many ways, it's it's you know typical rebellion that you see of a son wanting to be better, wanting to be bigger, wanting to be stronger and smarter and more sophisticated than his father, and yet also desperate to please the old man.
0: Right. And now I don't want to leave his mother out. She was a very strong woman. Is that right?
3: Yes. And uh, that was one of uh, Daddy King's greatest moves is finding this more educated, more established, you know, more um, financially stable bride. Some people accused him of marrying to uh, to get a foothold on, on the next rung of the of the economic ladder and the and also the next um, you know um, so, social ladder too, because Alberta uh, King was a formidable um, intellect. Um, she was she was in school. Her father was was the the the, the, the pastor uh, the preacher at Ebenezer Baptist, so. Um, she was a, a really s- smart funny warm loving um person a lot of people said that um daddy king even said this himself that ml got his his warmth and his love of people and his uh charisma from his mother and he got his um ferocity and his you know determination from his father
0: now why did martin luther king junior become a preacher because this was not something that was preordained so to speak.
3: <laughs> right. Um he, he wrestled with that. Um he when he entered Morehouse and he entered um and you know, he was two years younger than most of his classmates um, because he'd skipped some grades, he thought he wanted to be a lawyer probably, or maybe even a doctor. Um, he wanted to do good for his people. That was always one of his goals. But he resisted the call of the of the church at first. But, you know, he was so steeped in it. He, grow, he grew up, you know, not just going to church every Sunday, but really being in church almost every day and having people from the church over for dinner every day and, you know, probably learn to read prayers and to memorize prayers before he learned to read, actually. Um, so he just, I think the fact that that it was his father's line of work, that it was the family business, and the fact that it offered a kind of an escape from the Jim Crow South, it offered a kind of an escape from a lot of the bounds of, of uh, this white supremacist culture in which he was raised, because uh, preachers could had a measure of independence. They ran their own churches. They didn't depend on the white man for their salaries, and they had literally, you know, a, a podium from which to speak um, and to be heard. And all of that appealed to King. You know, being a doctor or a lawyer would have allowed him some um, a capacity to to fight the system, but being a a preacher offered a much more direct way of reaching the masses and moving people. And I think that really appealed to him.
0: And, uh, you know, he, at, at one point later on in his life, he pointed to his wife Coretta King as the person who actually got him involved in political activism. Is that a, a true assessment?
3: That's absolutely right. You know, um, Martin was a, um, was always popular with the ladies, even though he was, you know, he was short. He wasn't, you know, he was he was a handsome man, but not, you know, stunningly handsome. Um, but he had this great charm and and, and um he he never lacked for dates. Uh and when he met Coretta uh in Boston when they were both in school, um he, he had other women that he was seeing at the same time. And I think it's worth asking, it's important to ask why Coretta? And the answer, as best I can tell, there's obviously many reasons, but one of the big ones is that she had more experience as an activist than he did at that point. She had gone to Antioch College. She had been involved in protests there. She had um, been active with um, political parties, the Progressive Party in particular. So King was deeply attracted to the fact that this woman burned with the same kind of ambition—not just to change, not just to, cha- not just to uh, be involved in the movement, but to be on the front lines. And um, and they—I they, think it was a great intellectual intellectual match in that way.
0: If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Jonathan Eig about his biography of King, Martin Luther King, King A Life. Now, this book is also, of course, a lot about the civil rights movement because the two are inextricable, the life of King and that movement. So you delve into some of the stories of other figures like Rosa Parks. So just to digress for a minute to her I was interested to read that the earliest interview, which actually has just been discovered, the earliest interview about her refusing to give up her seat on the bus in Montgomery, was, um, was different from the myths. So tell, tell us about that.
3: This was fascinating to me, and it was one of my favorite archival discoveries. When the Montgomery bus boycott began, a group of um, sociologists from Fisk University went down to Montgomery and started documenting it without any clear purpose, just recognizing that something important was happening here and that um, someone should make a record. So these these sociologists, Black and white, began attending meetings, interviewing key figures, interviewing just people on the street, um, Black people and white people. They would record overheard conversations. They filed memos on everything. And these thousands of pages are now at the um, Amistad Research center in at Tulane University. And I was shocked to find what I believe, and I've conferred with other historians, I believe it's the earliest recorded interview with Rosa Parks. And she tells the story of her arrest a little bit differently. Um, you know, over time, people tend to um, not just exaggerate their stories, but just polish them a little bit. And in that very first story, she makes it sound as if she didn't necessarily um, seek that confrontation. Um, but once, um, once goaded, she, you know, she, she planted herself firmly and, and was ready. And, and she had also been in conference with, um, attorney Fred Gray of Montgomery before that moment. And, and, and Fred Gray had really helped prepare her for that moment. So it was not so much the, um, spontaneous act that it, that I think, uh, many historians have made it out to be. I think, um, it was as as you know in a, in a way that 's really nice uh, because it feels natural um, it was a combination of things it was it was her you know she she wasn 't just the tired seamstress she she knew where to sit to to make the most likely conflict, and then she was prepared if something happened for it to 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 really take her stand
0: mm-hmm. yes, now it was a watershed moment that Montgomery boycott for Martin Luther King. Because I think it really set him on his path to becoming the figure he was in the civil rights movement. How did MLK Jr. get involved with the Montgomery bus boycott?
3: This is one of the great quirks of history. And I love it when these things happen, because there's no reason to anticipate that King would become the leader of the boycott. He's new in town. He's still, um, you know, getting used to his new congregation he views this as a stepping stone job to a bigger congregation and then eventually perhaps to a teaching job at a, at a college. And he's got a new baby at home. So he's not looking for this. In fact, he's Coretta um, actually um, and, and King have some long discussions about whether he should even get involved in a leadership position at the NAACP, the local chapter, because their lives are so busy at this moment. But He's asked to be the spokesman, not the leader of the Montgomery Improvement Association. He's just asked to be the spokesman, in part because he's new in town and he hasn't made any enemies yet. And they think that if he's um, out in front, they won't have to worry about divisions. They won't have to worry about keeping... you know about some people wanting to sit it out because they don't like the leader. King is a is, is a blank slate at that point, and of course they also know that he has great speaking abilities, and they're looking for somebody who will um, be able to rally the crowds because they don't know how long this bus boycott is going to last. It might be one day, it might be two days, and of course it turns out to be a whole year. So um, King is thrown into this with little warning, and he's asked to speak on December fifth, nineteen fifty five, at Hull Street Baptist Church to a crowd of thousands that are just waiting to be told, you know, what, what happens now. And that speech is really the one that launches him. That's the first time that most people in Montgomery have heard his voice. And it's in it, it, his, his power to move a crowd, it, um, you know, it's just amazing. And, and it's, it's like a star is born in that moment. And he's the perfect man for this moment. And, you know, we'll find out why in in the days ahead.
0: Jonathan Icke talking about his brilliant new biography of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's called King, a Life. And go to writersvoice.net for a link to the entire interview. Next week on Writer's Voice, we spend the hour with the eminent climate scientist Michael Mann talking about his terrific new book, Our Fragile Moment. Don't miss it. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. And you can read interview transcripts at the Writer's Voice Substack. I'm your host, Francesca Riannon.